Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, Hey, I'm sir? doing great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> What's so funny? The way you said, I'm doing great. I almost didn't believe you for a second. Well, no, I'm excited about my new clavichord. <laughs> yes, Derek got a new clavichord. And I don't want to talk about it too much, but since it's on the Instagram, what it is, it's a, it's a, an instrument that has been out of style for like 200 years. And... Um, I'm learning how to play it. It's not fully tuned. I'm still missing two strings that I have to get, and then there's some some of the tangents that I have to repair. But eventually, I will be able to play the clavichord. Derek is going to be able to play the clavichord. Y'all should also know that Derek has had a clavichord in his room previously, but it was not functioning. It was solely for an aesthetic thing. He just yeah. had a non-functional clavichord in his room for decoration. Yes, but then I realized. It, that's kind of weird, and I actually want to play one, <laughs> so I have one now. I like how you didn't realize that was weird until after you got a non-functioning <laughs> clavichord put in your room for decoration. Well, I'm going to somehow turn this into like a, a talk somehow. You know how the, the general authorities, they have some weird thing happen to them, and then it turns into a talk? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, going to turn this into a talk. Like, I realized what was missing in my life <laughs> right when Jesus found me. Yeah. <laughs> and like... Here's what the clavichord can teach us about the gospel. Like, Uchtdorf does it all the time with aviation. Like, we'd be learning mad gospel lessons from airplanes. Yeah, I was a member, like, for just a few years, and I learned how to fly an airplane. Yeah. Learned about the gospel, learned how to fly an airplane. So, yeah, you could totally do that with the clavichord. In fact, I fully expect it. Years from now, when you're like talking in general conference and stuff. I am not going to ever speak in general conference. I mean, we don't know that, Derek. Never say never. <laughs> never say never. But anyway, we got uh, quite a bit to talk about, more than I expected to uh, glean from these particular passages. We are in the book of Alma, chapter 36 through 38 today. For those of you who do not know, these are the chapters where Alma is beginning to impart of some wisdom to his three sons. Uh, Helaman, Shiblon, and well, we don't actually get to his final son until uh, 39, but these first uh, three chapters that we're going to be discussing today focuses on two of his sons, uh, Helaman and Shiblon. So, Derek, do you have any context that you want to... Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the genre here, and this is a little bit confusing because... I can see several genres that are at play here. One is autobiography, because Alma is very clearly going over some of the highlights of his ministry and his life, imparting the wisdom to his sons. Then we also have what I'm going to call a patriarchal blessing, not the kinds that we get, but the kinds that are in the scriptures um, formatted like Genesis uh, 29. Um, Okay. Uh, I mean, Genesis 49, uh, where Jacob is, has 12 sons and gives them all this final blessing uh, before he dies. And then there's also the, f- that leads into this idea of a farewell discourse. And we have a farewell discourse, of course, in John chapters 14 through 17, where Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples. We also have a farewell discourse in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesians one last time and and teaches them and in this farewell discourse you have you also have an autobiography where you you have a highlight of that figure's ministry and then they impart some exhortations as to what do you what should you do when I'm gone. I think that's the real brilliance of 
Alma's speech to all three of his sons is he says a little bit different things to each of them, gives them wisdom for when he's gone. Now, I don't know if he's about to die right away because he doesn't die right away. But <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, he doesn't die right away. Spoiler but alert, is, he doesn't die at all. <laughs> but we're not there yet. Um, uh, he... Uh, but yeah, so he's giving this at, at least because he's. this is the time where he's passing on his legacy, he's passing on the scriptures, and then that's probably the right moment for his farewell discourse. So that's kind of what's operating here, and so we should take this into account when we liken to the scriptures under ourselves. Like, how are we passing on our heritage to others, and how are we responsibly using the heritage that we got from our ancestors? Now, before we really dive into the content here, I would just like to... Uh, point out a couple of themes that we see in the book of Alma 30, well, in Alma chapter 36, because these actually say several things that we have said in the past on this show, or several ideas that have uh, been brought up before. Uh, the first one I spotted, or at least the first one I felt uh, was worth uh, mentioning, was in verse 13, where we see this promise that we've seen many times in the Book of Mormon past. Now, um, I, I feel like these are worth naming because I believe the scriptures particularly when they repeat themselves, that we ought to pay attention to what's being said. It's probably important. Mm -hmm. Wait, wait. Does that mean that I should repeat myself if I want people to... <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Always going to be taking it a mile, Derek. Well, here's the thing. Like People are always talking about how there was so, such limited space on the gold plates and all that other nonsense yeah. and how um, what we have in the Book of Mormon are basically the most important pieces, yet we see so much of the prophets repeating themselves or repeating other prophets. And in this particular mm -hmm. instance, this is probably one of the most frequently repeated promises or maxims throughout the entire Book of Mormon. So I figure that if there are repeat moments in the Book of Mormon, we should probably lift those up real quick just for our own information. This one again, this is in uh, verse 13. So remember, remember, my son Helaman, how strict are the commandments of God. And he said... If ye will keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And this is an interesting thing. But if ye keep not his commandments, ye shall be cut off from his presence. Here's that promise again, Derek. And you've actually pointed this out about the, juxtapos the juxtaposition of these two particular clauses that helps us to make sense of what is being said mm -hmm. or what is, being, what is meant when the prophets tell us that inasmuch as you keep the commandments, you shall prosper in the land. Um. It appears here, and we're, we're actually going to see this again when Alma begins speaking to uh, Shiblon in chapter 38 as well, indicating that Alma understands how these words ought to be understood. That prospering doesn't refer strictly or even primarily to material wealth, but actually to spiritual strength and support. And uh, this isn't the final time that Alma is going to say this promise, or even the final time he's going to make this promise alongside the juxtaposition, or sorry, juxtaposed next to... Uh, what happens if you don't keep the commandments, that you'll be cut off from the presence of God. So that's one thing I wanted to uh, bring up. Mm -hmm. And the uh, second thing, which is another large theme from Alma and Amulek's teachings that we went over last week, was the emphasis on everyone's access to, uh, to God independent of the church institution. And in your words, that those who I, uh, idolize themselves as gatekeepers, that was something profound that you said last week that I think needs right. to be brought up again. Now, the entirety of this chapter, and I know you'll probably want to talk about this as well. Again, this is pointing back to this theme of having an independent relationship with Christ that is actually highlighted throughout this entire chapter in this giant uh, chiasmus. Um, 
we see it, it leans all the way into the fact that focusing on how the one source of Alma the Younger's relief from pain was Jesus Christ himself. In fact, Alma's pain is what bookends chapter 36, mm-hmm. and uh, the focus on Christ is actually the peak of the chiasmus. So I think that is worth bringing out, the fact that we have just had this conversation about the importance of having an independent relationship with Christ, and now as Alma is sharing his story with one of his sons, he is telling the whole story of his conversion in a very poetic way with both the pain that he's experienced, bookending it, and the focus and the peak of the chiasmus being that relationship with Christ. I just thought that was a, a thing that was interesting and worth bringing out in the context of these conversations that we've had recently. Yeah, and that mention of Jesus is actually the turning point in his autobiography because he's descending and descending into this mess, and then it's calling out to the Son of God at that moment that that begins, that his whole life turns around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he gets his life together and his life back. Yes, sir. And uh, the final thing I wanted to bring out uh, in this particular chapter was how Alma spent the remainder of his days. I think we've brought this up before, but uh, Alma committed some pretty terrible sins in leading people away from the Savior. In fact, um, you know, when you were talking about this descent, one of the conversations that Alma has in this particular chapter is that of uh, godly sorrow. He talks about how bad he felt, and he even uses the strong word murder to describe Mm -hmm. what he has done to the children of God. He describes his leading away of children of God from God as murder, which indicates how seriously he views his past sins. Mm -hmm. There's no indication that he knew any better at the time he was doing it, but as soon as he knew the impact of his actions, he decided to spend the rest of his life laboring without ceasing that he might bring souls into repentance, that he might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which he did taste, which that they might also be born of God and be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's what we see in verse 24. Now, what's interesting to me is that Alma spent the rest of his life in an attitude of reparation from the time of his conversion. Mm-hmm. We don't have a record, and I think I may have said this before too, we don't have a record of Alma apologizing with words for what he had done. We don't have a record of that. But we, like, we know he experienced godly sorrow. We know he was sorry. But how he reckoned with that godly sorrow was labor, is to labor to repair the damage that he has done. And I think the church can learn something from this. I've said it, I've said it before, but like, I, I think that I'm not so much looking for an apology for the, church's, uh, for the church's treatment of black people as much as I'm looking for an apology uh, as much as I'm looking for changed behavior. Like, I want the church to repair the damage. I want the church to make a more concerted effort to undo their anti-blackness and to embrace anti-racism, and not just embrace anti-racism, but embrace it on black people's terms rather than their own. We've seen what happens when the church tries to do anti-racism or tries to speak out against racism on their own terms. The two times that we've seen them release statements it didn't go over so well. Like uh, the statements were more bland than the food that 84% of our membership cooks. <laughs> so like <laughs> we cannot, we, we cannot try to do anti-racism on our own terms. We have to do that on black people's terms, just as Alma with what he did 
He didn't try to seek repentance on his terms. What he did was work on God's terms. He, in essence, turned his entire life, the rest of his life, over to God. And he made reparation by being engaged in the work of God for the rest of his life. And I think that is a very powerful thing to do. I think that's the best apology, is making reparation. Yeah, I mean, listeners, if you want to go back and look at Mosiah chapter 27, that's right after the conversion where it talks about that the Alma uh, and the sons of Mosiah, um, you know, strive to repair the damage that they had done and that they confess their sins, which isn't exactly an apology, but it definitely acknowledges responsibility and tries to fix it. If the church came out with an apology, and if they did it right, it might be more than a token, because I think what's happening is so many people, average people in the pews, say, well, I don't have to change this because the church never apologized for that, and there's so, it, so I don't have to say it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't have to say, you know, the priesthood ban was never from God because the church hasn't apologized for it, and until the church apologizes for it. So I think there's ways that on the ground an apology can have, if you do it right, could have an effect on how people treat each other. I agree with that statement, but then we get to uh, <laughs> we get to what's happened in Utah recently with people uh, reacting very poorly to leaders telling them to wear a mask, and we kind of see what happens when church leaders embrace a position or do something that ultimately shouldn't be that consequential, but then people just start freaking out about it. You know what I'm saying? I think yeah. if the church apologizes, we may not see something as drastic as what happens with a lot of people protesting mask wearing in Utah. But we are going to see some people freak out about the church apologizing for its previous racist behavior. Like, because what they would be acknowledging with an apology is, in effect, the falseness of a teaching that so many people have believed wholeheartedly for so many years. A teaching being that our priesthood ban was a racist thing to do. And so many people believe with their heart of hearts that that was divinely instituted. If the church apologizes the right way, a lot of people are going to have a difficult time coming to grips with that. So to an extent, I agree with that statement. I agree with that sentiment that uh, an apology can do some real good, particularly for some black folks. But it's going to make a lot of racist white folks hella uncomfortable. Isn't that what we want to do, though? Well, I'm not going to say that out loud, but you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're right. I, I feel like people do need to be made uncomfortable. I think that's where growth occurs. So, uh, yeah. I'll I'll agree with that. Anyway, I forgot what we were talking about. How we get here? Yeah, we were talking about <laughs> we were talking about Alma thirty six and yeah. reparations that Alma made after yes. his conversion. Yeah, that was the last thing I wanted to bring up. I think in uh, chapter thirty six, was there anything you wanted to bring up about uh, anything else that you pulled from thirty six? Yeah, just one thing in in verse three, and um. Alma says to his son, whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. So we have to look at people say, well, why are are you talking about the marginalized? And this is the marginalized here. Like who has... Who, you know, who has trials, troubles, and afflictions in the church right now? And our LGBT friends have a lot of those. I think we have, I don't want to compare and say who has anything worse, but we do have a, a significant problem among, um, how, uh, among LGBTs about how we're treated in the church. Mm-hmm. 
And the promise of deliverance is Alma's answer to that. He says, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. And I think that's that's marvelous that there's there's hope in the midst of these uh, afflictions, and that hope ends up centering, like all of Alma 36, on Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's one other thing in verses, you know, um, let's look at verses 27 and 28. Uh, it talks about the deliverance from Egypt, you know, bringing our fathers out of Egypt. And the one thing I wanted to say here is that Deliverance is communal, and the bondage that the uh, Israelites were in was communal as well. A lot of us, especially in America, are socialized to think that of that everything's all about us as individuals. But our whole view of exaltation is that and linking and having welding links to other generations is that it's not just you by yourself. We're connected. And you can't be saved, and you can't be fully saved in isolation as a as a country or as an individual. Um, so yeah, there's a communal aspect to sin, which a lot of people don't acknowledge. They think, oh, yeah. there's just a few bad apples, but there's right. there's actually something communal about sin and something communal about salvation as well. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. I'm glad you brought that up too, because um, this is a big part of acknowledging you know, our sin as a church or our sin as a nation, we like to focus on the individual thing because that allows us to believe in our own innocence. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that's a problem because so long as we view ourselves as innocent, we don't view ourselves as responsible for fixing the current problems that we have in our country or in our church with homophobia, with patriarchy, with racism. So all of this, making this a communal thing, I feel like for Mm -hmm. one thing, that's great theology. Like. I feel like if we as a church could view our theology more communally, then we would do much better in our attempts to address those very things in our church, particularly the plights of the marginalized people. So I'm really glad uh, you brought that up. That is in and of itself worth a whole conversation, Mm -hmm. this whole communal versus individual aspect of salvation, of of, um, fighting oppression of and of a lot more than that but i think that suffices me anyway let us move on to chapter 37 so chapter 37 oh i think the last thing i wanted to say about uh, what we just read in 36 remember who this is being said to this is alma saying this to his son helaman and i just find it very interesting that we're going to see a lot of these similar themes particularly in remembering the plight of people that came before us, in addition to remembering, um, you know, our sinful states previously, that is going to come up again when we get to the book of Helaman, and Helaman talks to his sons, Nephi and Lehi, mm-hmm. about this stuff. So when we get to Nephi, or sorry, when we get to Helaman chapter 5, we're probably going to be having similar conversations again, and uh, that just stands to let you know how powerful these teachings were from Alma to his son how powerful they'll be from Helaman to their sons. I think there's something else to be said there about uh, generational parenting or generational teachings lasting through generations. We see how impactful these particular teachings were on the, pre- on the generations that followed. And again, there may be something more worth exploring there, but I just don't know what that is. I just thought it was... Yeah, I mean, that connects to our, our intergenerational understanding of privilege. Oh, yeah. Both financial, yeah. education-wise, and even spiritual. Mm-hmm. We've got 
no one like there's some people who are born with a head start and that's not um we we need to address that and mm-hmm. make sure that that everyone has a fair chance and to do that we have to address the fact like i said last week that not only do you have to inherit wealth but people need to inherit the means to generate wealth mm-hmm. and that's why the zormites were given land and i think that that impacts the way we understand you know there's some people here that say well just everyone well, now that we're all equal and there's no more discrimination <laughs> everyone can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps but Ugh. some people are not at the starting line with everyone else right right and um that needs to be named yes sir thank you for saying that because i was at a loss Okay, now we can move on to uh, 37. We are in Alma chapter 37, the rest of Alma's conversation with Helaman. Uh, where do we want to start here? Is there anything you want to acknowledge immediately? Because I was, I was hoping that you'd say something about the value of Scripture, since uh, <laughs> that seems to be something that you know, know me well. Well, yeah. And let me just jump to verses 6 and 7 in chapter 37. All right. And so here we have this idea that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And the Lord God doth work by means, and by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. And this, these two verses are, in the, are bracketed by a conversation of, the, of handing down the records and, and knowing the scriptures and, and having that type of stewardship over them. Right. It's all about these these plates and these things being preserved. And so that tells us that this is really talking about the scriptures and the scriptures are going to look in some ways embarrassing or uh, humble or problematic or they're going to have human fingerprints all over them. And that's the small and simple things. We're not going to have this big, glorious, booming you know, solution to everything that is automatically going to make sense and just be pretty. And, you know, there's the scriptures are going to be messy. There's going to be complications. It's going to look very, very uh, raw and very rude isn't the right word, but very just unrefined and sometimes. And that's the small and simple things. And we look at all the people that God picked to be prophets. I mean, like, there's something majorly <laughs> wrong with every every single one of God's prophets that he has picked. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. And we have to modify our expectations of the prophets and of the scriptures. If we think they're going to be perfect, we're setting us up sell ourselves up for fragility and falling away the moment that our expectations are dashed. But if we have a realistic approach to, okay, look, there's going to be human fingerprints all over the church and human fingerprints all over the scriptures, and that's the way God works, through those simple means, right? Mm. What do you think about all this to help prepare people for, for the complexity in, this, in life and the scriptures? Well, I feel like, uh, well, first of all, I, I, I do agree with those sentiments. I think that it needs to be stated and you know i think we've had this conversation on the show last week too about how we need to allow room for complexity and uh imperfection in the prophets because you know we don't want to set ourselves up for failure we don't want to set ourselves up for disappointment like that we see 
that fragility on full display even today when people perceive any kinds of failings in their church leaders. They're ready, they're ready to go to war. They're ready to leave the church just because. Yeah. And, you know, I don't say this um, to diminish the reasons that people leave the church, but just it always bugs me a little bit when someone, particularly a person of privilege, will leave the church over something that doesn't directly affect them, something like racism or something mm-hmm. like homophobia. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, these people are human. Did you really think they were supposed to, like, are we really going to put ourselves in a position to not give other people the same grace we would want extended to us? And we're going to leave the whole church because of that? Like, that just seems to me to be a fundamental dispossession of everything that makes us human. You know, you said last week that you still view people like, uh, like Peter, like Paul, like Joseph Smith, you view them as heroes despite their many failings. Mm-hmm. And uh, this mm-hmm. position that we have put ourselves in, people who are trying to appreciate all that the scriptures have to offer us, people who are trying to appreciate all that the gospel is, we are able to make room for complexity in those characters so that we don't hold them to impossible standards that would cause us to just discard the whole of the gospel just because of their imperfections. Like, that is not intelligent. That is not good theology. That right. is not... That, that doesn't make any sense to me. And again, I want to say this with the utmost sensitivity to people who don't feel like they can be uh, in the church. But I also want to make sure that people who do leave the church are honest about the reasons that they leave. If that is for their mental, their physical, their spiritual health, that's totally fine. But putting the imperfection of other people on the reason that you leave fundamentally just seems off because none of us are perfect. Like, I don't believe a leader is any better than me. I don't believe that anybody who is in ecclesiastical authority over me, I don't hold them to to higher standards of conduct because at the end of the day, they're people just like me. When I was an elder, when I was a missionary for the church, the closest thing to an apostolic calling I will ever get, I was not devoid of biases. I wasn't devoid of imperfections. Like I was still very much who I am right now. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to be able to give people that same grace. Yeah, I have, a, I have a theory about why some members of the church just cannot accept the fact that prophets can make mistakes. And I think it, is, it has to do with their own lives and the fact that they have made their decisions. Probably they've made some really um, dumb or stupid mistakes based on what they thought a prophet told them to do. Maybe they went to a certain school or married a certain person or did this X, Y, Z, and it was not the right thing, and to avoid the pain of the cognitive dissonance, they refuse to accept the fact that sometimes prophets make mistakes. And I think because if they had to say that out loud and say, look, sometimes they make mistakes, then they would have to admit themselves that they did this dumb thing for no reason. Right. And they want to have a reason for doing this dumb thing that they did. And that reason is that the prophet told them. Yeah. I actually had a really good friend of mine, uh, somebody I served my mission with not too long ago, talked to me about how he was struggling with the church and in his marriage and how related those two things were because he felt like the church told him to get married. You know what I'm saying? At Mm. the young age that he did. Like the church gave him the idea that for him to have worth as a person, he had to find somebody to get married before he was 30 or 25. I don't know what it was. But basically, he was struggling with the church because he felt like the church put him into that position, and he's having a difficult time perhaps owning that decision that he has made as a result of some counsel he got from the church that had no business in his life. So I can totally yeah. see that because I have you know, seen that in people in my own life. 
And you know, as a as a queer person and as someone who has independent access to the scriptures and independent access to God, I'm really I feel exempt from a lot of the experiences that other people may have in the church. This reminds me of something that um the the famous uh, English preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He um he was talking about a little girl who lived in London and in London, the only birds she saw were the ones that were pets in people's homes. And then she took one trip out to the English countryside and saw a little bird hopping around in the bush. And she pointed at the bird and said, look at that poor bird. It hasn't got any cage. <laughs> and some people look at me and say, look at Derek. He hasn't got any cage because he didn't do all this stuff that you're supposed to do as a Mormon man. Like, I didn't get my eagle. I didn't get married in the temple. I didn't go on a mission. I didn't go to BYU. I didn't do any of these things. Mm -hmm. And all of these cultural baggages things, like some people look at that and say, oh, poor Derek, he doesn't have them. And I'm like, you're just saying, you're just saying something about my cage. <laughs> like, you're saying, oh, look at Derek. He doesn't, too bad for him because he doesn't have a cage. And that's mm -hmm. how I feel. Like, I don't feel... Um, like I'm just speaking for myself, like I'm having a good time in the church. I love it here. Like it brings me closer to the savior. It brings me closer to a community, but I don't have this cage imposed by these false understandings that a lot of people have, um, these false cultural expectations. And I'm like, so proud. I don't have that cage. I actually would really like to get into that once we finally get to, uh, Alma 38 and discuss Alma's words to Shiblon because what something that has been on my mind this entire study was the mission to the Zoramites mm -hmm. and all the things that were discussed with the Zoramites and the most important teachings that they got. Like all of them really came to the front of my mind as I read Alma's words to his sons. And I would really like to come back to this particular idea yeah. once we get to Shiblon's words. But uh, the one thing I wanted to highlight real quick that I uh, that stood out to me in Alma 37, and I don't know if I'll keep this in because I wasn't able to pull anything very profound from it, but I, I just really feel like it's important that we highlight another aspect or another repeated teaching about the value of scriptures here. Uh, going on from uh, verse 7, in verse 8 and 9, we see what the scriptures were able to do for people. It says, It has been wisdom in God that these things should be preserved, for behold, they have enlarged the memory of his people, convinced many of the error of their ways, and brought them to the knowledge of their God unto the salvation of their souls. The scriptures did that for people. You know what I'm saying? And that's, uh, yeah. that's an important thing to bring out. I was talking to somebody who is uh, leading me through a discernment process right now as I try to figure out whether or not I'm going to go to divinity school or not. And um, he told me about the first time he read through the Book of Mormon, like cover to cover, when he was like 18, 17 or 18 years old. And he realized that a lot of the traditional and cultural things that he was taught growing up about the church and about what obedience is were not correct. And I just found that super interesting that a lot of what we are inclined to believe about the values of our church or about the values of the gospel may not be necessarily in line with what is written in the scriptures. And the Zoramites found that out the hard way. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of them had the scriptures available to them but they didn't know what was in the scriptures. And consequently, they thought that because they got kicked out of their synagogues, they couldn't worship. They actually thought that, they actually accepted that they got kicked out of their synagogues. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they, like the words of Zenos and Zenic did two things. It one confirmed to them that they had 
no reason to get kicked out of their synagogues, and secondly, that they didn't need the synagogues to worship God in the first place. And I feel like a lot of people, if they actually took the time to read their scriptures, would realize that there are certain values of, uh, as LDS people that uh, aren't necessarily true. For example, the dispossession of uh, LGBTQ folks, not really a value of our people when you really read the scriptures. And there are several other things uh, you know, you can d- turn to. I didn't have the time to fully parse out yeah. what, a, what that list would look like, but I just thought it was very important to put, put it out mm-hmm. there that the knowledge of God unto the salvation of our souls, uh, enlarging the memory of us and like convincing us of the error of our ways, that's something that we can really gain uh, from the scriptures if we you know, really take them seriously, if we really take the time for ourselves to find out what's in them and we won't fall into these traps that you were talking about, uh, these traps of getting married before we're ready or mm-hmm. getting married just because the culture tells us to or participating in the scouting program despite all those <laughs> problems, um, going on a mission when a mission may not be for everybody or in the cards for everybody. So uh, I, I think there's value in knowing the scriptures for these reasons. You know, that, that gets to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that gets to this realization that I had, especially as a convert, that, many, that, the, that the Mormonism that members love or the Mormonism that members hate is only about 60 years old in the sense of all these cultural things and certain emphases, certain ways of doing things. Like all of those things, a lot of those are only about a generation or two old. It doesn't go back all the way to Joseph Smith. It doesn't mm-hmm. go all the way to back to Brigham. And I think the emphasis on like everyone must go on a mission that wasn't true until the mid 20th century. Mm. And the whole like anti-gay stuff as an emphasis, that that there's none of that really before the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't at all a priority of the church. And now people are making it like this is an eternal thing that we've been practicing since 1830 that we've always been this and that. I'm like, "No, this is this came in to the church in a particular historical context." And it became predominant and popular for a certain reason. But we're, we haven't always been that way, and, and we won't always be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this time, some people have just got it into their heads that we need to be mean to gay people and gay couples and gay families. I'm like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not who, who we are. I mean, that's maybe who we are as a people right now, mm-hmm. but that's not what we've always been and what we always will be. And it's certainly not what's in the scriptures. Right, exactly. You know? That's my point. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, glad we could bring it back around to that. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the devil, because it's important to, to know the adversary. Um, let's look at what it says in, in Alma 37, verses 33 and 34. So we've got this idea, the counsel to Helaman, that says, teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got this contrast between the devil and Jesus Christ. We've got this idea of being humble and being on on the watch for the devil. And I was thinking about this this past week. Like, what is the devil's priority? What's his values? And I thought, at first, I thought, well, maybe his value is pleasure. Like, he just wants everyone to have these pleasures. But then I realized that God actually wants us to have true joy and true pleasure and is all about you know, I mean, that's that's what that's what we have. That um, that's the whole point of 
of Adam's fall is that that we might be and and that we might have joy. And and where I want to go with this is that I, that doesn't that didn't make sense that pleasure was Satan's value. So what I came up with is this idea that one of Satan's primary values is the lack of accountability. He doesn't want to be accountable. He doesn't want other people to be accountable. He doesn't want any accountability. And that gets back to what happened in the war on heaven. And most people talk about agency, but it's also about accountability. Like he said, I just don't want everyone can do whatever they want, and there's no, no consequences, mm-hmm. no accountability. And that's in contrast to God. And God loves accountability. And by the way, God's servants should love accountability too. I'll get back to that. But let's <laughs> look at Genesis chapter 9. And this is Noah after the flood. We've got the rainbow. And I, obviously, I love the symbol of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. And to me, in Genesis 9, it's not a symbol to remind us of something. If you read it carefully, the symbol of the rainbow is put in the sky so that God will see it. And God will remember his promise not to flood the earth anymore. And so God loves, so I love seeing rainbows because it shows me that God loves being held accountable to his promises. Mm -hmm. So we can name that to God, name it back to God and say, look, you promised us this. This is what your covenant is. We're expecting this of you. And so God loves accountability. But Satan doesn't see himself as accountable. And I want to tie this back into what happens at the end of the Korahor narrative in Alma 30, the last verse, verse 60, says, Thus we see that the devil will not support his children at the last day, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. So Satan doesn't even see himself as accountable to his own followers. He's willing to abandon his followers at the last day, and, and um, he won't support his children in the end. And that's the lack of accountability. And what does that have to do with our church leaders and members? You know, a lot of our leaders and members don't want to be accountable for our, our white supremacy. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be accountable for um, the harm that we've done. We mm-hmm. want to just kind of like, I think I've used this meta before before, of like if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I trip, I just start to do a little jog and make it look like that's what I intended and pretended <laughs> like I never tripped, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do too often in the church is we just think, oh, if I just start doing the right thing and don't even mention the problem, then it will, then it will go away. And that's mm-hmm. not true because we've got long-lasting harm. And we need to be accountable for that. As members and leaders, we should be accountable for, uh, for the structures that we've created and accountable for the privileges that we have. And when we do something wrong, we need to take responsibility. Mm. I want to hear what you say about... Um, 38. Okay. Well, first of all, these are Alma's words to Shiblon. And I feel like anytime I've taken an institute, an institute class or a religion class at BYU, we kind of just pass over Shiblon. I feel like he's the Peggy Schuyler of Alma the Younger Sons. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that reference. There's still people that haven't seen Hamilton, you know? <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like he's the Peggy Schuyler of Alma's Sons. But this time around, for whatever reason, I think it was because the. Uh, teachings to the Zoramites were so powerful to me that the teachings that Alma gave his son Shiblon were just, they, they stood out a lot more to me. And uh, in, this, in particular, four verses stood out to me. So where is this? Shiblon, I, I don't know what child he is here, but this is a very short chapter because he's not the one being entrusted with the records and he's not the one being 
all kinds of engaged in sexual sin. So this is a very short chapter because Shiblon <laughs> is a good guy and he's not the birthright son. So we have a very short chapter. Now, uh, Alma begins by saying some similar things as he said to, uh, as he said to Helaman, talking briefly about his conversion, talking uh, a little bit about the promise to uh, keep the commandments and you'll prosper in the land. Where I really want to leave some focus is on verses 11 through 14. And uh, or ten through fourteen, and I don't know why these uh, stood out to me, but something that did happen as I read these verses at the conclusion of verse ten, I got the impression that Alma was counseling his son how to not end up like the Zoramites. This is verse right, ten yeah. here. And now, as ye have begun to teach the word, even so I would that ye should continue to teach, and I would that ye would be diligent and temperate in all things. Now, this is interesting. This is the first bit of specific counsel that we see Alma give to Shiblon. And again, this is right after the mission to the Zoramites, who we see have gone apostate despite having the gospel and despite having the scriptures. One might assume that one of the reasons they fell into apostasy is because they were not diligent and they were not temperate. Uh, Moving on from there, though. It doesn't explicitly mention the Zoramites, but it seemed clear to me from the beginning of his counsel that he was trying to teach Shiblon how to not end up like them, a people that had the word preached to them abundantly and still ended up apostate, proud, indolent, idolatrous, etc. The next verses, don't be lifted up unto pride. Don't boast in your wisdom or strength. It's easy to be lifted up unto pride when the value, your value as a person seems to be determined by your ability to check all the boxes of traditional church membership. We, we, we get, we fall, we can fall into this trap of complacency simply because of our ability to, to, uh, to assimilate by checking off these boxes. Like when you assimilate to cultural values of marriage, heteronormativity, white supremacy, patriarchy, and just otherwise unquestioning mm-hmm. obedience, uh, that can happen. And ability to abide these standards is often conflated with a sense of moral rightness. And consequently, a lot of people, the, right, the, the rightest among us, end up being the people who espouse those values, unfortunately. This is how the wealthy Zoramites were able to kick the poor out of their synagogues. And what made this worse was that the poor Zoramites, who were also apostate, had every right to be in their synagogues, even when they didn't require them for worship based on scriptures. But they didn't know them well enough. They didn't have the knowledge of the scriptures to be able to claim that for themselves and to believe that they could still worship God outside of their synagogues. Pride also leads us to laziness. It leads us to overconfidence. We saw this when the Zoramites thanked God for being better than others when they said the same prayers at the Ramiumptum and when they never discussed God again when they went back to their homes. It doesn't encourage wisdom, but ignorance. It doesn't encourage strength, but weakness. I feel like this is a very direct caution to us as members of the church. To the marginalized, we must know, as uh, someone you quote often, Reverend, uh, or not Reverend, Rabbi B'nai Lappi, yeah. uh, she's counseled us to know our texts better than those who would weaponize them against us. We have to be diligent, lest we end up like the poor apostate Zoramites who don't think there's a place for them in the church because people treat us poorly based on our identities, or they use our very texts as a weapon to socially and spiritually dispossess us. So we, as the people on the margins in the church, we have to be cautious of those things. And also the people who are in privilege, they have to be cautious too. They might be tempted to feel like they've arrived. They might be tempted to uh, feel like their work is done. They might be tempted to feel like they don't need to know the scriptures any better than they presently do. They might feel like 
I mean, they might just fall off in their scripture study and uh, not really challenge themselves and not really wrestle with the text. They might be tempted to uh, believe in the homophobic, the patriarchal, the, the uh, racist things that have been taught. They might believe they're okay and not just okay. They might believe they're actually divinely appointed. For example, my ex-father-in-law, he's like a multi-generational Mormon. He's like five or six generations or something like that. Might be pioneer stock. I really don't know. But he had made it to his 60s. He had um, been in bishoprics. He had been in stake presidencies, held all kinds of callings. And he still believed the priesthood ban to be divinely instituted. Now, when I challenged him on that, he didn't seem to be all that interested in having that conversation. In fact, anytime we, you know, broach conversations that could be particularly contentious, he would often politely but firmly shut those conversations down. And as a person of privilege, I don't really think that's an okay place to be. If any kinds of challenge to those particular teachings causes you to shrink or causes you to not want to have that conversation or not really wrestle with it, I think that is a, I think that is a problem. Like there's a warning in this chapter to Shiblon of letting pride or letting complacency get in the way of our ability to uh, both worship and our ability to minister. And I feel like this is one of the bigger problems that the church deals with when it comes to dealing with our, uh, our siblings on the margins. We're not in the best position to minister to them because, in short, it's pride. We feel like we've arrived or we feel like we can do all this work on our own terms, but we can't do that. We have to wrestle, we have to engage, and we have to get used to not having all the answers. I feel like that was the primary problem with the, with the privileged Zoramites is they felt like they had all the answers. They had the boldness to say that mm-hmm. there isn't going to be a Christ, the boldness to say that we're better than everybody else and we thank you God for it. And that is just not a healthy place to be as a person of, as a person of privilege. And equally so, we can't have pride as people on the margins to uh, not know these words, to be lazy or to slack off. We have to know these texts and we have to know them well enough to claim our space at the table of Christ. So um, there's a lot here for Shiblon that we really need to take to heart as members of the church. We have to remember the context in which these particular words are said as a conclusion to the mission that they just had to the Zoramites. Yeah, and this this gets back to this realization that's so important is that when we covenant to welcome others in, it's going to change us. The church is going to look different. It's going to sound different. It's going to worship different if we authentically bring in all of God's children like we're supposed to. Right. Ideally, we shouldn't be making every ward in the world like like Utah. Utah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think yeah, there's this idea of, oh, when you, get, when you, when you come into the church, we're going to fix you and turn you into, into this. And like, it's actually the other way around of, of we change. We have to change and we have to expand when other groups come in, when other individuals. I think when LGBTs are fully welcomed into the church, it's not going to be on the same terms as straight people because that's going to be... What I mean, wait, let me just say it differently. It's not going to be we're assimilating to to the straightness. Uh It's going to be we're accepted on our own terms, and that's going to change the whole landscape. Right. And it's going to change the whole church. Right. We're not going to look like everyone else. Correct. And we don't have to. And uh, then there's some more counsel in verse 12. This is just one sentence, but there's like three things that I feel like are important to be brought brought up. This verse reads, uh, 
Use boldness, but not overbearance. See that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. See that ye refrain from idleness. Now, this phrase, bridle all your passions, this is like the only thing that ever gets quoted Mm -hmm. from Alma Mm -hmm. chapter 38, and often so in the context of, uh, of, uh, of the law of chastity. And that's fine. I think that's a fine application of this particular uh, teaching to bridle all your passions. But I think that we really cheat ourselves by not looking at how this can be broadly, broadly applied. The intent of a bridle is to not, not, not suppress or to eliminate energy, but to redirect, to mm-hmm. focus it, to harness it. That's the purpose of a bridle. So like, we don't have to hide these passions that we have. We don't have to, rest- we don't have to like, not have them and it's not a sin to have them we just have to use them in the right place at the right time under the right circumstances that's the mm-hmm. purpose of of a bridle and this can be applied to more passions than sexual desires this can be applied to how we wield many other emotions that similarly can compel us to act improperly emotions like anger like hurt jealousy hatred excitement like all of these mm-hmm. can make us do some pretty not intelligent things. I've seen unbridled anger and hatred. Like this is a perfect example to me. Um, and this is a, I, I feel like this might be a really weird point we're at in history with this being the biggest civil rights moment that's happening right now. But I saw something that I had never seen in any other protests. I went to the first protest, the first one that happened in Boston after the death of George Floyd. But I went to the second one as well. And you know what I saw there, Derek? White people causing problems. Well, I saw that happen at the first protest, and I definitely saw that happen at the second protest too, but you know what I saw at the second protest in addition to white people causing problems? I saw proctors. Have you ever seen proctors at a protest? That is weird, man. Like, that's what they called themselves. They called themselves proctors. What they were was basically black people who were lining the sides of of the march who were making sure that white people didn't act up. Wow, that's that's great. I remember, um, you know, going to Black Lives Matter protests and marches already five years ago, like mm-hmm. shortly after, you know, Trayvon, which was seven years ago, I started becoming active in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I would go to protests and always my job there was not to yell and scream and make a fuss. My job was to stand there on the front lines between the cops and the black people behind me, and just to say nothing, right? Because, because I know that I I can protect my white skin. They won't do they, and they didn't do anything to me. I mm-hmm. like I was right in their face. They did nothing to me, right? And I was I was literally blocking a, a highway. Mm-hmm. I was blocking a highway. Cops in front of me. I'm right in their noses, and then there's people behind me, and I'm like, that's that's where where God would be, right? Absolutely. That's what Christ would do is um, get between the problem and the, the people who need the support right. and are, are vulnerable. So, yeah, I, I totally agree that, that white people should not, uh, you know, cause problems and, and cause a reaction that then would later justify police brutality. Correct. Because then that will not go on the white people, it will go on the Correct. black people. Correct. It'll go on us. So I just found this very interesting. Like this was the most recent example of a bridal that I could see because what I saw at this first protest was a lot of young and new people, people who didn't know how these protests work, people who didn't understand what was appropriate to do at these events, who were getting in cops' faces, getting in front of cars, stopping the wrong traffic, you know what I'm saying, and just otherwise 
acting out of turn, acting in ways that were not beneficial mm. to the purpose of the protest. At the second protest, there were literally people on the outsides of the march making sure that nobody acted improperly. I never seen that before. I've yeah. been to several protests. But like this is a weird place that we're at where we're seeing so many white people finally get activated, so many new people finally yeah. get activated. We now need proctors. Like what is that? Well, yeah, that reminds me of a of a problem I've noticed and I don't want to say anything bad about our our straight allies. Uh-huh. But there's there's something that happens when someone just becomes an, a baby ally. They think they know everything. They think they know exactly what to do. And what they end up doing is causing a lot of problems, displacing a lot of LGBT voices. They can actually make things worse for us. Right. And and I'm glad that they they started on their journey and they just now figured out that we're we're fully equal and and uh, and that we're fully human too. But part of me almost wishes that they were still a homophobe because <laughs> because that's <laughs> they be easier doing to too de- much. That 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 was easier to deal with. Like now right. they're actually causing problems and I can't control them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's uh, so so yeah. That's my advice too. And I've seen this just so many times, especially online. People will like wake up one day and like, oh, LGBTs are people too. And then they'll, they'll say stuff that actually doesn't help and it can hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, They'll be doing the most. And then they'll say, well, I'm doing this for you. And I'm like, Duh. then listen to yes. me. Yes. Do You're what? not doing it for right. me. Like nothing about us without us. If you mm-hmm. came like, yeah. So. So yeah. Anyway. And that gets back to this other point that that the that these baby allies need to have humility. They need to take this advice that was given to Shiblon because and this mm-hmm. can happen in the progressive world. Absolutely. That um a lot of people think, "Oh, well we're woker and we're already arrived." But even on in the progressive world, no one is 100% on every Correct. issue. We all have we all have problems. We yep. all have problematic thinking in some areas, and we can never say that we're better than other people. Absolutely. Like, Correct. We're kind of all in the same boat, but just on different parts of the boat. And if the boat sinks, we all sink. Mm-hmm. So I can't really glory in the devastation of someone else on the same boat as I am, even though I'm uh, at a point where I get the boat's getting to the same place all at different. Wait, what am I trying to say? We're all in the same boat. The people on the front of the boat will get there a little bit before the people on the back of the boat. But we're all going to the same place, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And we really need to not see ourselves as better than the people on the back of the boat. Right, right. I think I just combined about five different metaphors here. So. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but yeah, that's all I wanted to say about the bridal was basically that, uh, you know, there are lots of things that we ought to bridle. There, this, like this image of the bridal could probably be applied to many different things, but uh, I really wanted to take a moment to focus it on how we direct our energy when we do activism, uh, particularly in making sure we don't act or speak out of turn at these events, at these protests. And for people that are already on the margins, I feel like the bridal is a good way to, uh, is a good tool for boundary setting. Um, I remember something that I read on bridling passions referred to a talk that Gordon B. Hinckley gave on being offended about how somebody of little consequence had slandered him in a newspaper. And when, Gore, and when asked how to handle this, he was like, do nothing. 
Half the people who got the paper didn't see the article. Half the people who saw the article didn't read it. Half who read it didn't understand it. Half that understood it didn't believe it. Half those believe it, half the, and of those that believed it, they're of no account anyway. So yeah. like, <laughs> I would really want to counsel people on the margins who are you know, having this fight to just be mindful of where you direct your energy. It's really easy to get into heated debates and discussions with people on social media who ultimately are acting in bad faith or are of no consequence. Protect your energy because I think if you spend too much time in those spaces with people who either are not worth your time or people who are just not going to engage you in good faith, then you can't be filled with love. I noticed that the other part of this clause says, bridle all your passions that you may be filled with love. It's really hard to do that if where you're putting your energy is ultimately not to the end of recognizing other people's humanity and making sure that you are taken care of. Mm -hmm. I really don't totally understand how bridling all of our passions helps us to be filled with love in every context. Like I can see this when it comes to sexual desire and I can see this in some ways when it comes to activism, but I can't see it broadly. Do you have any ideas, Derek? Well, I think going back to this, to the ho- taking the horse kind of literally, I think an undirected horse can, can inadvertently, you know, step somewhere or hurt someone or, or do this thing, do these things that, might be dangerous and um because there's a lot of power in a horse a horse versus a human like is not a, a match that i would want to be on the human side of right and i think that's where um if you have all of this power and strength and muscle but it's not directed correctly you're gonna hurt someone and i think that's the opposite of love is there's just so many ways it could go wrong and it's an act of love in every context, to actually direct your power correctly and make sure that it doesn't overstep its bounds and inadvertently hurt someone else. Thank you for putting that into words. Cause you know, was, my sister just got a horse. Did I send you this? I you did. I, yeah. It was the whitest text message I got today. <laughs> like Sometimes I can seriously know the race of the person that is sending me a message without even seeing who sent it. And that ranks very high on messages I know were sent from a white person. My sister got a horse today. Ain't no <laughs> black person sending me that text. My sister got a horse today. That is the whitest thing I've heard today, Derek. Congratulations. Okay, I mean. Yes. Okay. Your I sister mean, got a horse. Tell her congratulations for me. Well, yeah, so pretty looking horse. All right. And that's all I had for uh, Alma 38. Do you have anything else for nope, Alma 38? That's it. That's all it. right. Then let us transition into our housekeeping items real quick. Before we do that, just wanted to let you know that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoir so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Lyceum.fm, or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on uh, BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. 
You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm trying to social media better. So if you see <laughs> something weird from us, it's probably me. Um, <laughs> anything that's not cool or anything that sounds too white to be uh, <laughs> there we go. normal. Just blame it all on Derek. Any of our bad content, I'll just blame it on Derek. Yeah, blame it on me. Um, do we want to uplift uh, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh's class? Yes, we do. Yes. I'm so excited about this. I'm going to try to do this class myself. It's called Spit and Mud. Is that right? Spit and Mud. And do you have a description of this? I do. Let me pull it up real quick. Okay. All right. So Spit and Mud is a uh, faith-based online educational series tackling racism from a theological perspective. This course is designed to confront both the uh, historical and present-day impact of racism within the Christian church, and more specifically, the Latter-day Saint religion. So it'll be a six-week online workshop series. It will offer a learning experience aimed at fostering deeper introspection and insight into the task of dismantling racism for those within or uh, raised within LDS uh, beliefs. So there's going to be a lot covered in the course. Again, six weeks. There is an Eventbrite link that we have posted to our uh, Facebook page, but we'll also put it in the show notes here so that you guys can uh, see more information about it as well as uh, get your tickets to the event. Yeah, I have to say that Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh is probably the best theologian we have. Bruh, say that. Like, seriously. Not the best theologian of color. Not the best woman theologian, the best theologian mm-hmm. anywhere. And she happens to be a black woman right. who is LDS. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is a huge treat, guys. Like, if you've ever had the opportunity to just hear her speak, you mm. know that this is going to be a huge deal. This is going to be a, a tremendous class. I love listening to this woman talk, and she is so freaking brilliant. Like, I can't endorse this course enough. Like, it's going to be life-changing. Like, and I don't say that flippantly or lightly. If I say something is going to be life-changing, like, I think there's only a few events. Like, I can count on one hand the number of events I've actually referred to as life-changing, generally speaking. So mm-hmm. this is a big deal, guys. If you're able to make it to this class, definitely do so. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change things for you. Yeah. So, uh, and also finally, a big thank you to uh, Tamara Kemsley, who has been editing our episodes. Uh, Tamara, we know she like getting married right now, trying to get married during a pandemic. We know that's stressful. So uh, wow. send some prayers and positive vibes her way because, you know, she'd be making us sound good and uh, we can't do enough for her. So, yeah. you know, just send those vibes. Also, David Doyle, who's been uh, transcribing or editing our transcripts for the show. Thank you to David. And also, finally, a thank you to Eden Wen, who's been handling our social media stuff in a superb manner. I feel so lame after seeing what she's been able to do with our social media. I'm just like, I've really forgotten how social media is supposed to work. And she's just been doing an incredible job with that stuff. So thank you to Eden as well. Yeah. Uh, anything else we got to put out there, Derek? Nope, that's it, I, as far as I know. All right, cool. As far as we know. So before we think of anything else, till we meet again next week, thank you for joining us. Okay, bye.